Good morning, everyone. Good morning, yes. Welcome to all of you. It's so good to see you and to worship our Lord together. It's like kind of like a family reunion every week, which is awesome when we meet on Sundays. So uh, praise the Lord for this place where we can gather and for his word that is awesome and our Savior who is Christ our King. Such an awesome God. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 5, if you'll turn there, and we will pray. I guess right before I pray, though, I'll just let you in on a little housekeeping. So today, it's the first Sunday of the month, and it's our practice to uh, have communion together. So it's open to anyone who's a believer, and the way that we run it is at the end of the service, We'll have some people who will be passing the elements along, so you're under no obligation to do so, but you are free and invited to, as a child of God, to obey Christ in receiving communion. And uh, so you'll take the bread and the cup, and then I'll just pray. So for those who are uninitiated with that process, hopefully that clears things up. and uh, No obligation, but invited and encouraged to do so. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are our awesome God. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior and for the life that you've given us through Christ. And thank you that we can enter into the rest that you've provided by faith and obedience to Jesus. And thank you for this place, Lord. Thank you for your work in our lives, for drawing us to yourself, for giving us gifts and allowing us to be part of your body, to serve one another, to love one another, and to be part of what you're doing in this world We are privileged and we're grateful. Lord, please open our hearts to receive your truth. Prepare us to walk in light of it and fill us with your joy, your spirit, and may we live to glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up in San Diego, there were about three news stations to watch on TV, free to air. Uh, and it was before on-demand entertainment. And, and when I think back, about, back to it, it's like I would watch news to hear what was new. I wanted to know what was happening in the world and the, the sports that I missed or what the weather was going to be that day. Um, and though we, the way we've sourced news and watches, we watch it ha- is different, there's still that desire in us to hear something new. We're interested in the international or the global stories that are out there, and uh, Paul observed this in his day. So this is nothing new, that we have an insatiable desire for knowledge, to hear something new, to, to like, oh, here's a fun fact, and we perk up. We're like, oh, yes, that's, that's interesting. In, in Acts 17, when he went to Athens, he realized that everyone there was either uh, it says they spent their time in nothing else but to tell or hear of something new. And so when he saw that idol to the unknown God, he's like, well, the God that you don't know, I'm going to declare him to you. And so they all gathered on Mars Hill, and he gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some mocked when they heard that. Others believed. Later, in a letter to Timothy, Paul warned of perilous days, uh, the last days in which the writer of Hebrews lived, because that's in the introductory statement of this book, like in these last days, that was the day in which that writer was writing, estimated to be 62 AD. 
2 Timothy 3, 7, it says, Those days would be marked by people who were always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's wild that we could be always learning but not come to the truth, fall short of understanding what it means and how we're to live in light of it. And it's possible, believers, we, you could learn something new today, but it not result in you knowing Jesus more, being more faithful to him. And our aim may be to acquire more knowledge, to hear something new, or what God's will is for us. We have those burning questions, right? I just want this answer. But we cannot let what we do not know keep us from doing the thing God's told us to do. The children of Israel, they heard the gospel, but it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. They did not obey what God had said. And let's not believe that a new revelation from God today will do us any good unless we're trusting him and obeying him. That's how it will profit us, right? If we're walking according to what God has already said, then we'll be able to use that and he'll use us. The thing is, this desire for something new, it's insatiable because new things get old. It's not new as soon as you've heard it. It's new for like a few minutes and then you're on to the next new thing. So the new doesn't satisfy us. I like what it says in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Just because a way is old, it doesn't mean it's good. But the good way should never become old to us. We're like, ah, that's kid stuff. No, that's foundation. That's necessary. We need to keep walking in light of the gospel the truth of God's grace and goodness to us. It's by faith and obedience to Christ we find rest for our souls, not in something new. And God, he keeps these things so fresh for us. So set, to set the context for Hebrews 5, let's read the last verses of Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest, greater than Aaron, because God called Jesus my son. There remained a rest for God's people and the way to enter it, was by faith in Jesus and obedience to him. To Hebrews under the law, they relied on the priest as being a mediator for them to re represent them before God, to offer up sacrifices for them. And these priests needed to be of the right line of the tribe of Levi. They needed to be sanctified. They needed to be wearing the garments. And the people would bring the sacrifice for the priest to offer. And Jesus, he is the way that we approach God and not just for Israel, but for all people to approach him today, that throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Following on now in Hebrews 5 verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. 
God is unapproachable in glory, and that sanctified priest was the one who was uh, chosen by God and fit to approach him. No amount of study or piety could qualify you to be a priest. Uh, it's not something you aspired to. It wasn't like they took uh, applications and whoever uh, had the best interview would be able to be a high priest. You, it was very specific. You had to be of the tribe of Levi and of Aaron's house. And you were appointed for men and things pertaining to God. So they were cleansed. They were sanctified. They were anointed with that holy anointing oil. They were wearing those vestments and the ephod to offer sacrifices on behalf of others and also for themselves because they weren't sinless. They had to offer up sacrifices for their own sin. And the humanity of the high priest and really their, their own failure, it gave them compassion for other people who were ignorant because that priest at one point was ignorant. And even in knowing what was right, still experienced temptation and, and fell into sin. So they had to keep continually offering up sacrifices for themselves as well as the people. So there was this compassion where he's like, man, I know what that's like to struggle with something. I know how compelling temptation can be. I know personal failure to keep the law. So they had this common ground with everybody. They were a, the high priest was a sinner only able to fulfill that role because God had appointed him and anointed him. That's the only way. is because God made that possible. Continuing in verse 4, And no man takes us honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Being the high priest was an honorable role that God chose someone to have. Aaron is an example. It's not like Aaron fasted and prayed to earn the right to become high priest, or he wasn't chosen from applicants, but he was called by God to be high priest, and he answered that call to fulfill that role. He and his sons after him, they continued that line of high priests, According to the law, they made atonement for their own sins and for those of the people. In the same way, Jesus did not take the honor of being the great high priest upon himself. He was chosen by God. He was called by him. He was anointed by him to be the great high priest, not just for Israel, but for all people to have eternal life. Think of at the end of Aaron's life. He went up to Mount Hor and he was stripped of his garments and his son, Eleazar, put them on. But Jesus, he has an unchangeable priesthood. He has no successor. He is the great high priest for all people, for all time. There's a theme in stories, and there's tons of examples of this, of the royal or the chosen one who was revealed in some odd way. You kind of go through the whole story waiting for the revelation of this person. Think of the princess and the pea. Right, that fable by Hans Christian Andersen where they have these seven mattresses and they, they slide one pea underneath the mattress. And for most normal people, seven mattresses thick would be very comfortable. But because she was a princess, she couldn't sleep that night. She said, oh, so uncomfortable. I couldn't sleep. She's the princess. Or Cinderella, right? Cinderella, she dances with the prince. She, uh, the clock strikes midnight. She loses her glass slipper. And they're on this great quest. The prince is like, I got to find that girl that... 
I really liked at that party last night. And they find her by the size of her foot. That's kind of an odd way to tell if someone's a princess or not. Uh, sword in the stone, this unknown lad, Arthur, he goes into a churchyard and there's a sword and an anvil and he's the only one able to pull it out so he is going to be the next king. This theme is just running throughout a lot of stories that we tell. The writer of Hebrews shows that Jesus was high priest because he was chosen by God. He was revealed to be that great high priest. In Psalm 2-7, it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Eleazar was high priest because his father Aaron was high priest. Jesus is high priest because his father, our father in heaven, chose him and called him to be the great high priest. And the previous verse is a bit of a spoiler that he would also be a king. Because in Psalm 2-6, it says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So it fits perfectly with Jesus being the king of kings, but also the great high priest. Continuing in Hebrews 5, verse 6. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. We're introduced now to Melchizedek, and he's only mentioned a couple of times in all of the Old Testament. He was both king and priest. The only interaction of Melchizedek is seen after Abraham came back from defeating four kings. He, he had 318 servants, and they traveled from Hebron all the way up to Dan and then to, uh, I forget the name of it. We'll get to there. I don't want to do too many spoilers. But in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, we read of this interaction. Like Abraham's coming down uh, through the valley, the valley of uh, outside Jerusalem, so the Kidron Valley, and he's met by Melchizedek in Genesis 14, Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Melchizedek, he was king of Salem. You think Jerusalem. Salem is what Jerusalem was called, even in Psalm 76, verse 2. Abraham, he's a man of God, and I like how it says that, um, that blessed be Abraham of God most high. He's like, of him. And then Abraham sees this king and priest as his spiritual superior. He gave him a tithe of all, so he gave him a tenth of all. There's one other reference to Melchizedek. If you can turn to Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. There's a lot of cool prophecies in the Psalms. Of course, the prophets and even the law. But this is a great one. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah, that's David's Lord, the promised king who would come of his line, would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus is the only one who fits this profile. Now in Hebrews 5, 7, it says, Jesus, the Son of God, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications. It says with vehement cries. So that's like sobbing, crying, weeping to God who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. We see Jesus throughout his ministry praying to the Father. He would be up uh, at all hours praying. And a, a really memorable time was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. He prayed if it were possible for that cup to pass from him, but he said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew the will of God. He always did the will of God. And he was heard because he feared God. Psalm twenty two twenty four. it says of God, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor he has hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Isn't it awesome that when we cry out to God, he hears. And he has compassion on us. He doesn't say, get over it. But no, there is compassion, there is love, there is care. The Father did not turn a deaf ear to the Son. The cross, and Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours, your will be done. God's will was done through the cross. It was the path to eternal life, redemption, salvation. Prayer, we can see it as a way, I guess you've put it very simplistically, prayer is a way to get God to do what we want. Hmm? Does, that ring, does that make sense? Like From a child's perspective. Or a selfish adult's perspective, right? Or just a careless perspective. Like, I pray so I can, God can change something. God can help me. He can provide for me. Prayer, the purpose of prayer is really to align our hearts with God's will. That we would do his will. We would do the things that please him. Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father who heard him and he hears us. Sometimes the answer to our prayer is no. But we know that God's plans are better than ours. His ways are higher than ours, and he will accomplish his good purposes. It, his, his answer may not be what we asked for, but his plan is best. Verse 8 says of Jesus, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus was in no way sheltered from the human experience that we have as a person on the earth. He learned obedience by experience. I like what the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says. It says, he learned his obedience not from his sonship, but from his sufferings. As the son, he was always obedient to the father's will, but the special obedience needed to qualify him as our high priest, he learned experimentally in practical suffering. It's really hard for us to understand how Jesus, being God, would have to learn anything. Right? We think, oh, he knows it. He knows everything. 
But the answer is fairly simple. There's a difference between knowing something and experiencing it. And God had never experienced some things as we have as human beings. Like, God, God knows all things. But had God personally experienced what it was like to live in a body of flesh? That felt physical pain, needed to eat, experienced fatigue. To know what it feels like to, to sleep or to feel tired, to, to have parents to honor. Like God is the father, right? He doesn't have parents. But in becoming Jesus, now he has, he has a son relationship to parents. Flawed parents. Parents who make mistakes. He had the experience of someone lying to his physical face. People, his brothers, who were mocking him and excluding him and, and uh, dealing in that environment, feeling like people were against him, knowing they were against him. Facing temptation. In a body of flesh, he, he was in all points tempted, yet without sin. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and the life of Jesus brutally ended with his crucifixion. But since he suffered, his compassion was genuine. He, he knows what it's like to be a person in this world. I was blown away recently. I read a verse along the same lines in Luke 2.52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I was, like, I was literally awake at night thinking about this verse, going, how is that possible? Jesus increasing in wisdom when he's wisdom for us. He's increasing in favor with God. And man, doesn't he have all of God's favor already? But see, in his humanity, there was an amount of experience required to enter into such wisdom and such favor. Because as a baby, babies can't make decisions based upon knowledge. Right? They wear the clothes that you put them into. They eat the food that you put into their mouth. But at some point, Jesus began to mature and his choices aligned with the Father's will as he surrendered himself to it. He walked in the favor of God as he grew in stature, so in physical height, he was growing in wisdom too. God's favor for all people is infinite. But we grow in grace when we obey God and fear him. And he increased, increased in favor with God and man because he had relationships with people in real life. And he knows what it's like to live in this world and to be faced with choices. Will I honor God? Will I seek his will? Will I have my own way? Hebrews 5 verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Jesus was perfected. That means to complete, literally finish or accomplish, being consummate like in character. Jesus grew, he matured to adulthood, he suffered and became the author of eternal life to all who obey him. It shows that, because it says all who obey him, it shows us it's not sufficient just to have Jesus as Savior, but also as Lord. We must obey him. If you say you believe Jesus, and you believe he is your king and the son of God, well then we also must obey him. And it will be a joy to do so because of our relationship with him. 
the love that we've received from him. People often write books about their own experience. Like an autobiography, by definition, needs to be written by the person themselves. If they're going to write a book from their perspective, uh, it, they are the ones uniquely qualified to write that book. Jesus, having lived a life free from sin, he overcame all temptation, he died according to the Father's will, rose from the dead, it showed that Jesus was the author of eternal salvation that he's able to give to all who trust in him through the gospel. And his resurrection shows that that sacrifice was acceptable, that it was sufficient to cleanse sinners, to reconcile them to God, to give eternal life to all who trust in him. And Jesus rising in glory, it shows that he is indeed a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There's a bit of a shift here, isn't there, where the writer of Hebrews is now addressing the spiritual dullness in his hearers. He's saying, this is a bit of a challenge to explain to you because you're dull from much hearing. You've heard this a lot, but it hasn't changed your life. You're not walking in light of it. At what point, because these were Hebrews, right? The book is called Hebrews. It's being written to Christian Jews. They rejoiced to hear the gospel. They were so blessed to be brought into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, but they became zealous for the law. They returned back to the law to gauge their righteousness before God rather than faith in Christ alone. Paul, he traveled to Jerusalem at one stage and he was approached by Jewish believers who had heard, oh my goodness, that Paul, he was off the Jewish bandwagon big time. He had been eating unclean, he wasn't keeping the law anymore, and they go, we just want to make sure that you're still one of us, that you're still keeping the law and doing the right thing. And then they said in Acts 21.20 how myriads, how thousands of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. So they're not zealous for Christ. They're not zealous for the gospel. They're zealous for the law. They're zealous for people to be circumcised and to eat kosher and to return to that means of approaching to God through sacrifice, through appearing for the feast days rather than faith in Christ and that being an expression because God wasn't calling Jews to live like Gentiles or for Gentiles to live like Jews. That our way that we approach God is through faith in him and obedience to him. And so it was, it was good for Jews to continue operating under the law as far as keeping the law so that they could reach other Jews with the gospel. They were very concerned that Paul was not keeping the law as they were, but he was. He was keeping the law, but it could never save a soul. The law never saved anybody. Jesus is the only one who can save. And it was difficult to explain these truths of God to the Hebrews because they were dull of hearing, which in Greek means hard to move. It's like you guys are really set in your ways. You're set in your way of thinking. And no amount of things that I say seems to shift you. You're not receiving it. You're not changing your course based upon the truth of God's word. There's an ignorance that comes from a lack of knowledge, but there's also an ignorance that comes from ignoring what was said, not living according to it. Hearing without obedience leads to dullness. 
It's like when a person's told by the doctor, you know, your health is in, in grave. It's a grave concern, and you need to change your diet. Or it's start exercising, and the, the patient's like, yeah, I know. You know, you really shouldn't be eating that. Yeah, I, I get it. But, but they keep eating it. They keep doing it, even though they know it's, it's disastrous for their health. But they, they know the truth. Oh, this is bad for me. I shouldn't be doing this, and I shouldn't be doing it like I am. But dull of hearing, hard to move. You just keep doing the same thing. And it leads to a lack of feeling. So dullness, lack of feeling, lack of understanding, lack of caring. In the end, you're like, just dismiss it. I don't even go to the doctor anymore because all they do is critique me. (laughs) Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There's this point to admonish those Hebrew readers for their lack of spiritual maturity in regards to the knowledge of God, the revelation they had received from him. He's like, by the time I've written this letter, you guys, since you've known Christ for so long, you should be teaching others, but you've almost regressed spiritually to the point where you have to go back to the most basic foundations. You have to go back to drinking only milk. You need to learn the basics of the gospel again. This shows us the danger of being dull of hearing, how knowledge without obedience leads to spiritual regression. It's like someone who forgets to walk with, how, how to walk with Jesus because it's been so long since they took a step of faith and obedience to him. They haven't taken a step of faith, and so they're forgetting how to walk. They believed in God, they trusted in Jesus, but they reverted back to the law as measuring their righteousness, as a gauge for how they're doing with God rather than relationship with Him by grace through faith. Newborn babies, they grow and mature just drinking milk. And it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. It's like a cow that gets big eating grass. It's like, wow. They drink milk into their weaned. There's nothing wrong with adults choosing to drink milk. Yet the Hebrews came to need milk because that solid food was not agreeable to them. It's like they couldn't keep it down. They didn't like how it tasted. It was because their beliefs and their lives didn't agree with it. That was the issue. They reverted to gauging their walk by the vain attempts to keep the law. And the word of God, it's excellent in providing the spiritual nutrition for both the newborn babe and the one that is spiritually mature. In light of the gospel, Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and all envy, sorry, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We're all born into this world as infants, and when we're born again, we are like little babies who need the milk of God's word, the pure milk of his word, drinking in the grace of God and his love. 
God desires that we would grow to maturity, not remain as babies. It's like, think about a baby. They, they can't walk anywhere. They need to be carried. And babies are kind of passed from person to person. Crying, screaming, doesn't matter. Or, or content. They, they have to be passed around. And it says in Hebrews 13, 9, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So we're not to be carried away with extra-biblical teachings or legalism or traditions of men. It's like we're having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're called to learn how to stand. A baby can't walk on its own. A baby can't clothe itself from the cold. 1 Peter 5.5, it says that we ought to submit to one another in love and be clothed with humility. That's a choice, right? The baby doesn't have a choice of what, what it is wearing. And when you look at some of those baby pictures, you wonder, I would never have worn that. That is, it's a little, like even when I was, and that's even more embarrassing when you're like a teenager and you see what you're dressing and how your hair looked then, you're like, woo, okay, that, I don't know what I was thinking back in those days. I actually chose to wear that and I thought it was cool. But it was, we look at it now and we go, hey, it really wasn't that cool. But see, as we mature in faith, there's choices that we make in faith in God to walk with him, to follow him. What are babies known for? Eating, crying, sleeping, making a mess. We all need to eat, but the baby, the baby only cries when his or her belly is empty, not because someone else is hungry. The baby has no understanding of that someone else could be hungry. Someone else wants to sleep. The baby's all about its own needs, right? So those, young, those who have that spiritual regression, they're only thinking about their own needs, not about how to provide or how to serve others. We can be spiritually asleep, be senseless to God's voice as he's speaking to us. And so... Uh, this, it doesn't matter how far you've gone with Christ or how long you have followed him. The reality is we can all revert spiritually to being like these babies that the writer of Hebrews addressed. Verse 14, it says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Another thing that babies do, they put anything in their mouth doesn't matter what it is, indiscriminate, they'll, things that are not edible, they will be drooling over. Right? They just have to put everything in their mouth. They're, they're not skilled to discern if this is good for me to eat. And that's why you put things in your mouth, is to eat, to drink. They can't discern edible fruit from poisonous berries, and so put those berries or slugs or something in their mouth that just doesn't belong there. But there comes a point where a child grows to maturity. They realize, like, that is not good for me. Or someone who has allergies, they will carefully read the packet. Say, can I eat these chips? Can I eat this food? Because they realize what makes them ill. And so they make a wise decision to say, that may look good. You may think it's great, but it's not for me. I cannot eat that without getting sick. Christians, they're called in the, to grow in the knowledge of God and through his word to discern both good and evil, 
to know what's good for me to be doing, what's good for me to be watching, and what I should avoid doing, what is sinful for me. And as believers, it's not just what we're consuming, but what's going on in our hearts, what's happening in our minds. What are our motives in the things that we're doing? So God gives us an understanding of these things that's far deeper than just what I do or don't do, what I eat or what I don't eat. He wants us to, he's looking at the heart. Solid food, that has to be cut up and chewed. We're called to meditate on the word of God. To receive that wisdom that guides us and sustains us and corrects us and helps us grow in grace. And we can be very concerned about our sinful habits or conduct. And that's fitting, but God is more concerned about the motive of our hearts, where it comes from. That's the heart of so much of our sin. It's not just in what we do, but in our desire to do it. God will address that. So if the Hebrews who truly received the gospel, they regressed in their walks to resemble babies... There's a potential for all of us, regardless of how long we've known the Lord, to regress, to become like those babies who are just putting anything in their mouth, who are carried about by various doctrines and don't have their feet uh, planted firmly in the gospel of Christ. He says, by this time, guys, you ought to be teaching. Now, God hasn't called everyone to be a pastor, but our lives ought to give that lesson. They ought to be a really a tutoring uh, of other people of what it is like to follow Jesus, how we ought to serve him, how we should love one another as he loves us, how to keep his commandments. In our zeal, we can wander from the truth of the gospel and become sedentary Christians who refuse the bottle and make a fuss. And so we're not to be like them. We're to grow to maturity and be those who are teaching others by example. Now, on the first Sunday of the month, we do have communion together, so we're going to do that, and everyone who's a Christian is more than welcome to partake, and we'll have those elements passed in a few minutes. But I thought it would be really cool to talk about that meeting with Melchizedek and Abraham because of uh, how significant it is. So the background of that story is Abraham was living in Mamre, which is in Hebron, and there was a battle in Sodom. So that's south of the Dead Sea. And uh, four kings from the north came down and they defeated five kings, Sodom being one of them. And Lot lived in Sodom at that time. And then those kings went up to the north again. And I'll read this passage and then, so why don't we turn there? Genesis 14, starting in verse 13. We'll read this passage together and then I'll show you just a a map so you get an idea of the scope of what was happening. Genesis 14, starting in verse 13. There was the battle. Lot and his family were taken captive, and Lot was Abram's nephew. Genesis 14, 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. 
he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So if I could have that uh, graphic or that slide, please. So one man escaped from the battle. He reported what happened. So the battle took place down here, south of the Dead Sea. And this is where Abram was staying at that time. And he pursued the kings all the way up to Dan. And that's the northernmost region of Israel. So that is some 320 Ks. That is like a long way. And then it says he went north of Damascus to Hobah, which is another, and I don't know exactly where Hobah is, but Damascus is another 180 Ks. So for one man in his household, Abram gets up with all his 318 servants and they travel all the way up north. They defeat the four kings who had just defeated five kings with 318 people. And then they bring back Lot and all the people come down through Jerusalem. And that's where they meet or are actually met by Melchizedek who comes out celebrating, right? He brings them, what did he bring them? Bread and wine. The two parts that Jesus used during the Passover meal when he instituted communion. That we would proclaim his death till he comes. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. That those elements were symbols of what he would accomplish. And Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, it shows us those elements. It's like a celebration of victory, of deliverance. Like, blessed be God because of what he's done. And you have this in Genesis, this great passage of Melchizedek meeting the victorious Abram. And then Jesus then telling his disciples, remember me, proclaim my death until I come. Because Jesus did far more. I think, man, Abram must have loved Lot to travel all that way just to save him. When the odds were against him, right? That would be a most improbable victory. But hasn't Jesus done more for us? That he came to earth as a human being and he chose to die on the cross for our sins. And he's now raised in glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, that we could be forgiven, that we could have new life. That was an impossible victory that Jesus has won for us. And let's, let's celebrate that. Let's rejoice in that, that Jesus rejoices to save us. We're undeserving of being saved, and yet he delights to do so. We have fullness of joy forever. Abram, he responded by giving Melchizedek a tithe of all, 10%, but we are called really to give Jesus our all. He's purchased us with his own blood. He's called us by his name. He's adopted us as sons into the kingdom of God. So let's celebrate the victory and life of our Savior, who's given us the Holy Spirit as the down payment. So if I could have the worship team come up, please. We will have a song. While they're singing, uh, people will be by passing out the elements, which if you're a Christian, I encourage you and you're welcome to receive of them. Uh, and then I'll, as soon as everyone's received, the song will end and I'll just pray and we'll receive together. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for Jesus and the victory he's accomplished. Thank you that you save us, though we are undeserving of your favor. How kind and gracious you are, Lord, to love us, to forgive us, to give us an everlasting hope through Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice on Calvary, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Thank you, Lord, that through his blood you have sprinkled many nations, that we have many nations, Lord, uh, uh, in this very room, that you've brought us from different places of this world, all just united in Christ to rejoice in you, to praise you, to glorify your name, and to proclaim your death until you come. Thank you, Lord, that we have a hope and a future because of you and because you've given us eternal life. Thank you for your body that was broken and your blood shed that we could be called, have the right to be called children of God. Lord, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from our faults, and cause us to draw near to you in faith. I ask that you would be honored and glorified in this time, Lord. Receive the praises of our lips, and may you be the desire of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.